All right. Happy New Year indeed. Good morning. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Story Church. I'm Eric, and I'm so glad that you're here. Thanks for being a part of the story today. It's good to see all your faces. Uh, the last time I was here was two weeks ago, um, and it was Christmas Eve. And um, turns out it was the biggest out of the nine Christmases we've celebrated together as the Story Church. It was the biggest Christmas Eve crowd that we've ever had. Um, the biggest non-Easter crowd that we've ever had. And, and in light of, you know, the last few years, COVID and then the two different moves that we had and all the disruption and everything, it's pretty amazing what the Lord has done in our midst. And uh, I'm, I'm really in awe and just I've been riding high ever since. Riding so high, in fact, that I took last week off and um, was so blessed by Derek, my buddy, uh, who, was, uh, who stood in and preached his first sermon at the story and uh, did a great job, and, and uh, I'm, I'm so grateful for that and grateful to be back. I've accomplished a lot over the past couple of weeks, as you can see. <laughs> if you're sitting in the back, I have a mustache, and you might not be able to see it yet, but it's coming, all right? It's only been a couple of weeks, so... Uh, <laughs> Give it time. This is my Christmas present to Gio. She loves it. <laughs> loves it. <laughs> that may or may not be true. So I get to keep it till Easter. That was the deal. All right? So uh, anyway, midlife crisis, I don't know. If it is, it could be worse, right? It's like I'll, I'll grow a mustache instead of get a convertible and we'll play it out. So it's great, great uh, fun to be here. And it's, uh, it's been a fun couple of weeks. Um, in addition to growing a mustache, I took uh, my family on a couple of really cool road trips. So first, we went to the Texas Hill Country. We visited our friends out in Fredericksburg who are um, working to start the uh, farmhouse, which is a little house church that's going to be watching the story's sermons um, via video live in the farmhouse and, and having discussion opportunities and, and growth opportunities there soon, uh, coming to a farmhouse near you in Fredericksburg, and I'm really excited about that. Love driving through the Texas Hill Country. And then after that, um, we decided we were supposed to be in the Holy Land at this point. That got canceled uh, for obvious um, reasons, but in lieu of that, we decided to fly the kids to Vegas, as you do when you... I'm just kidding. So we did fly the kids to Vegas, but, but we rented a car in Vegas and drove through the Mojave Desert to the Grand Canyon, where um, you know, we saw the sights, and it was sort of a rite of passage for every parent to take their kids to the Grand Canyon. So check that off the list. But for me, it wasn't even about you know, the Grand Canyon so much or, the, or, or even Fredericksburg, which I love. It was the best part of it was the drive. Um, driving is my love language. <laughs> I know that's weird. I don't know how many people in the room would, would agree with me on that or share that passion. I know a lot of guys tend to really enjoy driving, especially when we're alone, but it's also okay with our families, <laughs> and there's no road trip too long, you know, it's just like, it's a, it's a, wonderful, it's a wonderful thing. I put a lot of effort into driving, and uh, I think, you know, I, I really, what I really love about driving is, is just having an attainable goal in mind, something you can achieve and sort of neatly do without complications, and and I also enjoy the competition, and if you don't know what competition there is involved with a road trip, it is between me and Siri, and what time she thinks I'll get there, and what time I plan to get there. And my family is totally oblivious to this ongoing war in the car, and as evidenced by their constant requests for, let's stop here. You know, it's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm battling Siri here, and everything's at stake. And so it's all about efficiency. 
on, on the road trip. And, uh, and, you know, whether you know it or not, that's really the, the name of the game is avoiding distractions and disruptions, avoiding any kinds of roadblocks or uh, construction zones and, and trying to manipulate your children's bladders as much as possible so that there's as few stops as possible. Um, and, uh, and so you keep them busy on the tablets or whatever it takes to get their minds off the fact they have to go and all that. So it's, it's all a, a big uh, game. But the end goal in mind is that efficiency. And um, I, I become obsessed with it and I've been thinking lately a lot about road trips for obvious reasons, and, and, and it has occurred to me in a way, I think, um, I think that's why so few people um, follow Jesus. Let me explain what I mean with this. I think that a lot of people look at their lives the way I look at a road trip. And a lot of people become singularly focused on one thing, one destination. And for some people, like many people I meet in Houston, which is a very driven, kind of a workaholic town, in my opinion, as speaking as someone who just moved here 10 years ago, right, almost 10 years ago, I think I can say with some confidence, this is a, a pretty work-heavy, career-heavy town. And so there's a lot of um, people that live with that destination in mind. By that, I mean whatever their idea of success is in their careers. And they don't want any distractions from that. From that journey they're on, they don't want anything to take away from that or, or to delay that. I mean, any kind of inconvenience, you know, can delay that. I mean, efficiency is the name of the game on that journey. But the same can be said for somebody who's walking a different kind of journey in their life. Maybe, maybe you're walking a, a journey of adventure and your destination is experiences, right? You want to live life to the fullest and you don't want anything to get in the way of your next adventure, your next trip, your next whatever. And and so you're singularly focused on that, and, and that's, a, that's a way to live your life. You know, I think that's perfectly understandable. And there's some people that just kind of want to be, well, they just kind of want to be, you know? They just, they're, they're sort of uh, the impulsive types that kind of want to, they just want to live their lives in peace and quiet and be unbothered. And, and, and so they pursue, sometimes impulsively, comforts or conveniences, and they don't want anybody to interrupt that pursuit. No judgment, I'm just naming it, because I think when, when we talk about the, the Christian journey, what we're really talking about is being called off the road we've been on. And, all right, and I like her already, so I don't know who it was, but y'all do it too, so, so it helps. So, so being called off the road you're on, onto a different road. And it's not like you're going from a hard road to easy street. If anything, it feels like the opposite. It feels like you're being called away from an easy, relatively easy road, most of the time, onto this unknown path that few are treading, and you don't know where it's taking you, and you're giving up everything to go there. Like, that's how it feels to adopt the Christian way, to follow Jesus, it feels like it costs something, like a lot. You know, it feels very costly to follow. I'm not saying it will cost you anything to be saved by Jesus. I'm just saying it might cost you everything to follow him. Okay? So that's why I think so few people do it. And this isn't just my opinion, talking statistics or anything. Jesus named this for us a long time ago. 
In Matthew chapter 7, um, verses 3 and 4, I believe, Jesus said this very sort of thing. He said, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. A lot of people think of Jesus as this big softy, kind of, like, like you know, just everybody, all paths lead to the same place, all stuff kind of, that's how people think of Jesus. Jesus spoke with an edge because Jesus spoke with truth. And this is the truth. Few people find the path he came to give us because it's a hard path to choose. It's not because they're necessarily ignorant of it. It's because once you see it, it's clear that it's going to cost you something to tread it. One of my favorite philosophers, Christian authors in history, was Chesterton. I quote him all the time. You all know that. Chesterton said this same sort of thing. He said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. And so there's lots of people, I think, that come and kick the tires on Christianity. Churches are full of them every Sunday, and that's great. If that's you, I'm so glad you're here, kicking the tires on Christianity. I also acknowledge the fact that if you choose to take the next step and hand over the keys of your life to Jesus and get in the car with him, you will be in a distinct minority among the tire kickers, okay? Most tire kickers walk away. For whatever reasons, they walk away. And I think generally it's because it is a challenge to depart the journey you've been on and all that comes with it and to take up this whole different journey um, that means relinquishing the control of your life to Jesus. This is why, this whole thing is why, whenever somebody does make that decision to follow Jesus, that hard decision to get off the wide road and take the narrow one, we should join heaven in celebrating to the utmost. Nothing should excite us quite like that. Nothing in this world should excite us more than a conversion of a new believer. And, and sadly, we get more excited about other things, don't we? We get more excited about sports than we do about the conversion of a new believer. I understand it feels like a brand new day in Houston. We have a, an NFL playoff team all of a sudden. How'd that happen? As of last night, remember the Houston Texans? They still they play here. Do you, get, you know that? Like the Houston Texans are in the playoffs. I know that celebration right there is the problem. I'm just kidding. No judgment, whoever did that. As long as you woo even louder for someone coming to faith in Christ and relinquishing the control of their life to him. And, and so you know, it's not just sports either. It's politics and also most people will cheer louder if their candidate wins in November than if a stranger becomes a brother or sister in Christ. And that's a problem. We should acknowledge that. The fact that it is so hard to make this choice and so few make it should signify to us that it is a truly sacred, tender moment in someone's life. And more importantly for the church, Christians who are called to surround new believers and to welcome them into the faith, into the family of God, 
It, it should be a reminder to us that the moments and days and months following someone's conversion to Christ are extraordinarily tender. And we should be extraordinarily careful with how we um, walk alongside that person and how we choose to, to speak and act around that person and how we choose to encourage them along the, the, the way. The Im impact you can have on a new believer's life is beyond this world. So this message today is part 16 in a series called Acts of the Apostles. Um, we are spending 26 weeks in this book called Acts. Today we're going to be in chapter 15. If you want to get your uh, Bibles ready, you can do that in, in chapter 15. But uh, our astute Congregants will note today that we are skipping five whole chapters of this book, and that's by design. It's not, we just, we're trying to get through the whole book, and uh, when I was designing the series, there's just some thematic redundancies, let's say, between chapter 11 and chapter 14 that I feel like can be easily summed up, all right? So I want us to all be on the same page. Here's what you need to know before we get into Acts 15. Between Acts 10, where we were last week with Derek's message, um, about Cornelius and his conversion. In Acts 15, what will be today, the gospel movement has spread like wildfire. Now, the world, interestingly, has turned against the church at this point in history, but the more the world turns against the church, the more the church thrives. The less friendly Christianity and the gospel movement become with the world in a secular sense, and I don't mean with people, I mean with the the systems and principalities of this world, the less friendly Christians get with them, the better the church seems to do. And I could also make the opposite case, the more friendly the church has gotten with the institutions of this secular world historically, that's when the church has been at its worst. Right? So there's nothing wrong with the gospel movement being adversarial when it comes to what the world values. In fact, what we see in Acts 11, 12, 13, and 14 is, uh, is that the, the, the gospel spreads like wildfire when that is the case. And so they, they stoned Stephen to death. The gospel movement spread to Samaria. The Samaritans started becoming Christians. They, in Acts 12, um, James, who was one of the 12 apostles, uh, John's brother, one of the sons of thunder. Remember how he's talking about sons of thunder? He was savagely beheaded by King Herod in Acts chapter 12. What happened then? Did the Christians circle the wagons and cower in fear? No, they continued to spread the gospel throughout the surrounding regions. And so what's happening by Acts 15 is that Gentiles, by the hundreds, are coming to faith in Christ. And this is initially received well by the church, even though all the Christians before this were Jews, and Christianity was basically a Jewish sect up until Acts 10. And, and now all these Gentiles are saying, we believe too. We're part of this movement too. And initially everybody's excited. But as you might imagine, it only took a minute for the snarky, cynical, judgy types <laughs> to show up and speak their piece. Okay? So we're going to talk about that a little bit today and the conflict that arose in its aftermath. In, in its aftermath. Chapter 15, verse 1 is where we'll start. Certain people, it says... Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Antioch, Gentile territory. Judea, sort of the Jewish hotbed in the center 
of the Christian world at the time. So these people were coming and teaching the Gentile converts. So what were they teaching them? Quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And this brought Paul and Barnabas, who'd been discipling these Gentiles, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Sharp dispute and debate, I think, is serious. That's not just a conversation, is it? Like, they're about to come to blows. Isn't that interesting? Like, these Christians are getting aggressive in their disagreement. Why? Well, in this instance, it's because these guys that came from Judea were misrepresenting the core truth of the gospel, which was salvation by faith, right? Salvation by faith through the grace of God and nothing more, okay? And so not only were they discouraging the people they were teaching, but they were contradicting the message that Paul and Barnabas had converted them with. And so whenever Christians, especially Christian leaders, misrepresent the gospel and subvert the work of the Holy Spirit, it's worth fighting about. Not every instance that Christians fight is it worth the fight, but in this case, or cases like it, it's worth speaking out against it. So that's what Paul and Barnabas did, and, and, and it's not hard to understand why. They weren't just saying, hey guys, welcome to the family, so glad you're Christians. Now, have you considered circumcision as a way of life? You know, this, that would have been different had they said that. But they were like, if you're not circumcised like us, following the law of Moses like us, you can't be what? Saved. Okay, and that's what really got Paul and Barnabas up in arms. So let's, let's, keep, let's keep reading now. Verse 2, the end of verse 2 says, So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question, the question of who belongs in the Christian church. Then some of the believers, I'm skipping to verse 5 now, if you're reading in a Bible. Verse 5 says, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. In other words, in order to be Christians, they have to keep the whole law of Moses. 613 rules that suddenly these Gentile people are supposed to adopt for themselves and live under. Um, you know, in the aftermath of their conversion to Christianity. That's what the party of the Pharisees was insisting upon. Party of the Pharisees was a sect within Judaism that was known as sort of the conservative sect of Judaism, theological conservatives, I guess, would be fair to say. And uh, Paul called them the Circumcision Party, which is a pretty fun brand. Um, <laughs> I think it was in jest, you know, like, because uh, all those guys ever talk about a circumcision. You know, it's just like, come on. Ain't no party like a circumcision party. You know, anyway, the circumcision party just fixated on this one part of the Bible. Now, in res with respect to the Pharisees, like they get easily thrown under the bus a lot by Christians because they were always in conflict with Jesus. But these Pharisees were Christian Pharisees and they were doing what they thought they saw the Bible saying they should do. So they almost had it. And I want to acknowledge that that they were almost right because the, the Bible did in fact call for people in that time and place to live under that law. But, but they were missing another part of, the, of their scriptures that was vital to understanding the fullness of God's plans that had been revealed in Christ. Okay, so, so let's keep reading and find out what that was. What, what, what were they missing in this dispute? 
Verse 12 of Acts 15 now. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. Again, the question of who belongs. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us, that's Simon Peter, who had just given his expert witness before this reading. Simon Peter described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. So what they are, what they are doing here, Paul and, and Barnabas, uh, I'm sorry, this is uh, James in the aftermath of Paul and Barnabas' uh, uh, witness. James is pulling from Scripture to interpret Scripture. So what you're about to hear isn't James's opinion. It's not what he feels like saying. He's not calling for a change of course among the Pharisees because it's time, you guys. It's to be on the right side of history. None of that stuff. It's about what Scripture says in its fullness. And so then he quotes the Old Testament prophets, as is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. That's a euphemism for Israel. I'll rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Who's that? Who's the rest of mankind? The Gentiles. This was the plan all along, that the Gentiles may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. This has always been the plan, in other words. It is my judgment, James said, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, because idolatry is wrong, I and mean, it's a foundational piece of the law. We worship only God, the God of heaven, so no food that had been sacrificed to idols, from sexual immorality, because how we live in our bodies matters. Faith isn't just a spiritual thing that we play out in, the, in our thoughts and feelings. It's embodied, and so we honor God with our bodies, and so sex should only happen within the marriage bed between one man and one woman in marriage. So sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. That's one rule that has to do with blood. This is the most contextualized of the three and hardest to understand. To, to partake of a strangled animal was to, was to imbibe in, in its blood and not just its meat. And this was a pretty common practice among pagans, a ritualized practice that um, from a, from a Judeo-Christian perspective looked like a desecration of the sanctity of life because the blood of any creature is the stuff of life. And so life is sacred and sacrosanct and should be treated as such, and so blood shouldn't be so lightly taken for granted. Those were the three rules that James said we should give to Gentiles to generally obey. And by obeying and living under those rules, they're basically obeying and living under the whole law because that is the heart of the law. There is one God who is worthy of worship, how we live in our bodies to honor him matters, and how we protect the sanctity of life truly matters. And so beyond that, uh, James's only response is, we Christians shouldn't make it hard on the Gentiles who are coming to faith in Christ. Why? 
We shouldn't make it harder than it needs to be. Why? Because it's already incredibly hard for anyone who's been far from God to come to faith in Christ. It's a trying and taxing experience to escape the wide road of the world and to take the narrow road of Christ. Think about it. Somebody who commits their lives to Christ, what are they actually doing? They're saying yes to Christ. Yeah, but what else are they doing? They're saying no to everything they've been saying yes to before Christ, which is not nothing. I remember in the aftermath of really authentically coming to faith in Christ in 2013, I had to say no to a lot of stuff that I'd been saying yes to, and I lost a lot of people I thought were friends. Family relationships got really complicated, and, and, and my internal sort of conscience had to need some fine-tuning. I just had to work through a lot of stuff. It wasn't easy. I'm not saying my salvation was in question, but as I learned to follow Jesus, a lot of stuff came to the surface for me. And that's probably true for every believer who, uh, especially in adulthood, decides to uh, follow Jesus. And so it's no easy thing to take the road of discipleship. So we Christians shouldn't make it harder for folks than it needs to be. Makes me think about some folks that I've met along the way, this journey we've walked as the Story Church for almost nine years now. I think about people, because of our mission being to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus, we, I think, have a, a greater number, uh, percentage-wise, of folks that are kicking the tires any given Sunday. And uh, one young woman came to mind in particular. Her name was Anna. That's not really her name, but I'm protecting her identity, so work with me. So uh, she, when I met her, uh, she was... Uh, in her mid-30s, and she came to church alone. Somehow she found her way to the story. I can't remember how, but probably somebody invited her. That's how most people find their way to the story. If not the podcast, someone personally invites them. Just heads up if you haven't invited someone in a while. Um, it works. And uh, Anna was alone that day at church, and uh, apparently, despite all of her best intentions and all of her efforts and all of her mother's fervent prayers, Anna had not found a husband in her mid-30s, and now she was fixated on this problem of, in her mind, growing old alone. Again, just mid-30s, she's not growing old alone, but this dying alone idea was just, it was imprisoning her because that was the wide road she had been traveling. It was everything to her. And as her options dwindled, at least in her view, you know that, again, these are lies the enemy tells you on that wide road, okay? And as your options appear to be dwindling, you are tempted to lower your standards, and that's what Anna did. She ended up in a relationship she never would have dreamed being in, a relationship with a married man. And she had been, um, you know, frolicking around with this married man um, who had a wife and kids for about two years by the time she came to the story. She knew that it was wrong, but at the same time, she believed the lie that this man loved her enough to leave his family for her one day and that that was going to make her life okay. The, the delusion of it is profound, but it's one that most of us, if we're honest, have fallen prey to or something like it, right? The, the devil is a liar and we should be aware. At the end of the service, uh, she hung out for a while and, and she approached me and, uh, and she asked, could, we, uh, could I pray for her one-on-one? -on -one? And I uh, responded the way I do to most women uh, who want to do anything with me one-on-one -on -one, um, <laughs> is uh, let me call my wife over. And, and that's not, I don't, it's not about her or me. It's just about perception and, and wanting to make sure everybody's all totally safe and, and uh, taken care of properly. And so I invited Gio over and 
And Anna was totally fine with that, by the way. And, and um, that's usually a good sign when someone's fine with you bringing your wife into a prayer and, and all that. And, and, uh, and so we prayed. And after that, Gio kind of took Anna under her wing. And I remember watching the transformation that took place. And, and it started with Gio, as she is so uh, prone to do, speaking the unadulterated truth to Anna. And um, it's a gift because I have trouble sometimes just telling people exactly what they need to hear. I like telling people what they want to hear. Um, Gio will tell you what you need to hear, and uh, it's not always the same thing. And uh, she said, if you really are serious about following Jesus, let's take your phone out right now and delete this man's contact information and block his number from your phone. Let's be done with this. You can't honor God and continue in this relationship. And and Anna knew that Gio was right, you know? And, and yet, you know, in, a, in retrospect, it's obvious that was the right move for Anna. All of us would go like, yeah, obviously, clearly, duh, no-brainer. But for Anna, in that moment, that decision was going to cost her something. Now, it might not be worth that much to you, but it was worth a lot to Anna to have someone she was seeing. To be able to go home for Thanksgiving or to any family dinner and say to her happily married mother and her happily married sister and her happily married friends, yes, I'm seeing someone. But if Anna took this step, she would have to go home and say, nope, I'm single and that's okay. And those sorts of decisions come at a great cost to the people who make them. Now, thankfully, Anna chose wisely. This was several years ago now, and uh, she has, uh, she's moved now. She's living in another place, but she's following Jesus. She loves the Lord. She studies the Bible like nobody's business, and she teaches the Bible now. And, and, uh, and as, a, as an aside, she is happily married and, and all of that, but that wouldn't even, that's not necessary to Anna's story. That's just what God does when he just, it's like icing on the cake, right? Um, it's been a beautiful thing. To behold, but it all began with Anna making a choice that could not have been easy for her to make. Here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just interrupt your Sunday mornings, does he? Jesus interrupts everything. Jesus is your best friend, but your least efficient one. Following him will mean perpetual distractions and delays. What I mean by that is he meant it when he said, love your neighbor. And so you might be on your way in a rush to get someplace on time someday, and there's a neighbor, an inconvenient neighbor, ready for you to show him what the love of Christ looks like. That's one example of the ways Jesus inconveniences us. It's not easy. And to make that choice means you have to work through a, a lot of stuff. And James's point in Acts 15 is pretty clear, or should be. Why would we as more seasoned believers go out of our way to make that choice even harder for people for whom it's already quite difficult by putting all these superfluous barriers and roadblocks in their narrow path. Now, 
We probably have some tire kickers with us this morning, and again, I'm really glad you're here. We probably have some folks that are new believers. Like, I'll say that's like within the last year, you've decided to take Jesus really seriously. Maybe it's even sooner than that. Maybe it's within the last month. You've decided to take Jesus seriously and and make him the center of your life and follow him, And, and I'm excited about that decision. I praise God for that. And Maybe we won't have anybody at this church in 2024 stand up and say, now what you need to do is get yourself circumcised. Or like, you know, you you won't have any of those old arguments cropping up, but you might still run into some unnecessary resistance from Christians who still see it as their mission to make folks' journeys a little bit tougher than they need to be. I don't know why. Maybe it's, you know, the sin nature is still working on us or something, but Christians just can't seem to get out of our own way or out of the way of others sometimes. And we do that in all sorts of ways these days. I asked the, my readers of my Friday emails um, for their examples and ideas of the ways Christians today stand in the way or make the journey for new believers more difficult than it should be. And the answers I got were, I mean, first of all, they flooded in immediately. I was like, people were ready for this question. It's something that struck a chord with folks. And you know, I saw things, lots of things from like just, um, you know, Christians are just not very nice sometimes. It's like at church even, no one says hi to me. Guys, what are we doing? Say hi to each other. Right now, just look at somebody right now and say hello. This, hi, I'm glad you're here, man, wow. I see the image of God in you, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And now do that in the hallways and in the parking lot and out in the world. Like, like be Jesus to one another. Be thrilled to see and welcome each other. It really surprised me how the coldness of uh, showing up at church without, you know, your built-in community here, how clicky and cold church can sometimes feel. But it went beyond that even. A lot of the responses, the most popular answer that I got to that question, how to Christians today make it more difficult than it should be was they make every blasted thing political. And that's something. In an election year. That's right. 2024 is an election year, so get ready. I mean it. Get ready. Because how will you follow Jesus in a way that transcends your political ideology? We must. All of us must. And I fear that we put so much credence and power in politics today because we no longer trust the power of the gospel. You trust the power of the gospel. You care who gets elected, but you know it doesn't really matter in the end. God's going to have his way. All right? So, all right. I like you too. Thank you. Praise God. So, I... Anyway, don't do that. That's trying to check my ego, and it's not helping. It's not me. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Um, it's not. It's, it's just the truth. It's the truth, and we should be ready because we become so divisive in our politics. And I'll tell you how it happens. It doesn't happen from the pulpit usually. I've made my mistakes, to be sure. But it happens in casual conversations around tables at Bible studies. When a newcomer shows up, And they're excited to finally find people who aren't like the people in the world, so divisive, so hateful, 
judging each other across political aisles, and they sit down with coffee and tacos to find a bunch of guys that are still divisive and hateful, and you know, and all the liberals. And, and, and it's not just conservatives that talk about liberals. I've got friends who do that. Some of you are here today. You're going to be real surprised you get to heaven and some blue-haired liberals up there. Watch out. You're going to have to make a decision. Eternity with those guys or not? Like, okay, God is God and you are not. He gets to decide. I've got friends and family, too, who are going to be real surprised that there's Trump, Trump voters in heaven. It's like, it works both ways. You know what I'm saying? And the truth is that the truth of God transcends our political quagmires and stuff. And we should live accordingly. Some of the ways we put barriers in people's ways simply by judging how they're doing by the wrong metrics. And we look for institutional fruit when we should be looking for spiritual fruit. And, and we, we judge how someone's doing by how often they attend church. The church attendance is fine, but it's not really a metric of, you know, it's, it's not one of the spiritual the fruits of the Spirit, right? It's not like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and church attendance, right? It's not. Um, we, should, we should be asking new believers, hey, how, how is it with your heart today? How is it with that situation you're grieving? How is it with your family? How is it with your soul? How can I be praying for you? Those sorts of encouragements go a long way for new believers and that should be the business of the church where new converts are concerned. And that's a challenge to all of us. The challenge uh, for those of you that are new to the faith is how will you, in spite of Christians sometimes getting it wrong, how will you continue in 2024 to put one foot in front of the other and follow Jesus even when it is hard? And as we start a new year, I challenge you to take that question seriously and name one or two ways this year you're going to persevere through the difficulty of the narrow road of Christ. Whether you're a new believer or a seasoned one, there's a challenge before us. The good news is, by some miracle of grace, converting to Christianity isn't just about choosing to be on God's side. It's about choosing to see the most miraculous thing ever, which is that the perfect God of heaven has chosen to be on ours. It's a beautiful thing that I'm still wrapping my head around 10 years after I became a Christian. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love, for your grace and mercy. We thank you for showing us the way to your narrow path. And as difficult as it might be to exit the, the wide road of this world and to walk along the path you have for us. Lord, we know that it's a journey worth taking. Lord, help us each day to surrender control and to relinquish our control over our own lives to you and full trust uh, that you know, you know what we need. You know us better than we know ourselves. And Lord, you know what we're created for. And so I pray that you would show us how to trust you. For the new believers in the house, Lord, I pray for perseverance and encouragement. For the seasoned believers in the room, I pray that you would show us how to be a greater source of consistent encouragement for those who are coming to faith so that we might make it more joyful and not more difficult for those who are claiming your name. 
We pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.